Well, church, we're continuing in our series in Acts chapter 11, our series, uh, Thy Kingdom Come, God's Mission to the World. So I ask, as we do each week, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, and then chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. This is God's Word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 13. Now were there in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray again. Father, we come to your word because we need it. Uh, We need to hear from you. We need to be reminded of who you are and who we are in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, would you cause this word to change us? I pray that we would all leave here transformed because we have encountered you, the living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen can be seated. We all desire to be successful, right? I have yet to find anyone who enjoys being a failure. And in order to be successful, in most any endeavor, we really only need two simple things. We need a vision And we need a commitment to see that vision accomplished. We need a blueprint. And we need the resolve to see that that plan becomes a reality. Automobile genius Henry Ford once came up with a revolutionary plan for a new kind of engine. We know of it today as the V8. And Mr. Ford was eager to see his new idea get into production, 
So he had some of his guys draw up preliminary plans, and he presented them to his team of engineers. And as the engineers studied the drawings, one by one they came to the same conclusion. The conclusion was that their boss, although an incredible visionary, was not much of an engineer. And so the engineers, as gently as they could, went to Mr. Ford and told him that his dream was in fact impossible. But that didn't stop Henry Ford. He declared, produce it anyway, and when they objected, he ordered them to stay on the job until they succeeded, no matter how long it took. And for a whole year they labored, but to no avail. And at the end of year one, Mr. Ford came and he met with his engineers to evaluate and check on their progress. And once again, they told him, Mr. Ford, this is impossible. Your dream is impossible. But he didn't listen again and simply demanded they keep going. And they did. And within a few months, they finally discovered how to build a V8 engine. The same engine which was installed in Ford's passenger cars and trucks for over 21 years. And most agree was the most important development ever made by the Ford Motor Company to this day. You see, Henry Ford had a vision, a blueprint, if you will, and he had a commitment to see that vision accomplished, even when it seemed impossible. The church at Antioch that we see here exists as a wonderful blueprint, really for all churches, but particularly for Christ Central Church. So much of who we are and what we long to be is exemplified in this very church. And so therefore, in a somewhat non-traditional way, I want to dissect with you the church in Antioch. And I want to use its design to instruct us as we move forward as a church. And what our text reveals is that Antioch is a multi-ethnic, gospel-centered, mercy-minded, church-planting church plant. It's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. Antioch is a multi-ethnic, gospel-centered, mercy-minded, church-planting church plant. Now, we certainly could preach a whole sermon on each one of these pieces, and someday we might, but this morning I want to look at all five. I want to take a brief look at each of these five pieces, one by one, and examine them in the church of Antioch, and then apply them to the church in Durham, or Christ Central Church, that is. The five pieces again, multi-ethnic, gospel-centered, mercy-minded, church-planting, church-plant. Now, I want to start with the church plant piece, since that is probably the most obvious and easiest for us to digest, although it may not be as intuitive as one might think. And as we begin, I want to give you a brief overview of the context into which we're talking, context being the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch, according to the Roman historian Josephus, was the third greatest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a strategic trade location, somewhat of a bridge city between the east and the west, and therefore it was a melting pot of cultures and ideas. It was known for its arts and literature and had quite the reputation for being a little rough around the edges. And it is into that context that the church plant, Antioch, has its genesis. So read with me again in verse 19. 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Christ Central, what are the circumstances that normally produce a church plant? What is the prologue that leads to the creation of a new church? Historically, a church plant always was preempted by conversion. Excuse me. Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Seems rather obvious. Conversion happens, and out of that spawns a church. People come to Christ, and those individuals come together to form a new kingdom outpost that is geographically driven. The new Christians who are in, cl in close proximity to one another form a local body of believers. That is church planting. However, Christ Central, our story is rather different, isn't it? We exist primarily as a reshuffling of the deck. What do I mean? Most of us came to Christ Central via some other church, not via conversion. And therefore, in some way, we lack the very essence of a church plant. A church plant at its core is about kingdom expansion, not kingdom relocation. And yet there is still hope for us, Christ Central, because Durham is in fact not that different than Antioch. Durham is certainly becoming a trade center. Durham is now the second largest city in the empire known as the Triangle. And look out Raleigh, we're coming for you. Durham is certainly known for its art, music, literature, and is even known for being a little rough around the edges. One of its slogans is, keep it dirty. And so, brothers and sisters, that is the context into which we enter as church planters, all of us. And certainly there is no shortage of non-Christians for us to rub shoulders with and do life with in this city. And so in order for us to follow the blueprint of the church of Antioch, we must be faithful to verse 20, preach the Lord Jesus. It's our calling. Daniel pointed out the congregational meeting last week that a recent poll shows that 80% of people say they would come to church if invited, and yet only 2% of all Christians invite people to church. It's a startling statistic. Church, if we truly are a church plant, we must be focused on advancing the kingdom, on preaching the Lord Jesus where he has not yet been preached. Amen? That's the first piece of the Antioch church, a church plant. But what kind of church plant was Antioch? Which leads us right to our second point. Antioch was a multi-ethnic church plant. While I was in seminary, I was presented with a church planting strategy called the homogeneous or homogeneous unit principle. This is for real. I'm not making this up. The principle states that we need to plant churches that are made up of people who are more or, the, who are more or less the same. Why? Because people will, norm, will naturally flock to a church that is filled with people that are like them. 
and therefore growth will happen much more quickly. That's what the principle states. Birds of a feather flock together. But what does God have to say about this principle? Look at verse 19 again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Again, what we see here is that the church of Antioch is spawned out of conversion. But what kind of conversion? There are two types of evangelism going on here that Luke points out. You've got some evangelists that are speaking, verse 19, to no one except the Jews. Only people like them. Homogeneous unit principle. And then you've got another set of evangelists who spoke also to the Hellenists, the Gentiles. Now, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but Luke reports no fruit amongst the people who are preaching only to the Jews. But for those who are preaching to the Gentiles, they, they experienced immeasurable fruit. Why? Verse 21, because the hand of the Lord was with them. Because God poured out his blessings on their ministry. What we see here and what Luke is making plain is that God delights in blessing multi-ethnic works. He's passionate about them. It's not that he's outright opposed to ministries that embrace the homogeneous unit principle. The text doesn't go that far. There may be other texts that do. That's a different sermon. But what the text does say is that God is fired up about multi-ethnic church plants, that he loves to bless them. Christ Central, we got to wake up. Forgive me if we sound like a broken record these days, but it's not Daniel and I's personal agenda. This is the book of Acts. Multi-ethnic church bleeds through every single page. It's always been there. And brothers and sisters, there's multiple applications for us this morning. First, we need to take courage in our vision to be a Christ-centered, cross-cultural community. We can take courage that God is going to bless it. We can be encouraged that when the vision gets hard, because it will, because hundreds and hundreds of years of history has built up walls between us, we can take courage that God delights to tear down those walls. Amen? Secondly, look over at chapter 13. We see the fruit of planting a multi-ethnic church. This is Antioch a year later. And here in verse 1, Luke gives us the lineup of the current leadership in this church. And I want to highlight the incredible diversity here. First, Barnabas, a Levite, which means he was a Jewish priest, but he's from Cyprus, which means he was part of the diaspora, the scattering of the Jewish people, which means he would have been in touch with Gentile culture. Next, Simeon, who went by the name Niger, which means black. So there isn't much that we know about Simeon, but we know one thing. He was black. Black leadership. Early church. Then Lucius, because of his name, most scholars think that he was Roman, which means he had status and power. But he was also from Cyrene, North Africa. He was African. Menaean, he was a companion to the prince. Uh, which means he was an extremely important political figure. He had 
status, power, wealth. And then Saul, a Pharisee from Cilicia, he was part of the religious elite. Do you see what we have here? We have this beautifully diverse group of leaders, some wealthy, some not, some powerful, some not, some schooled in the faith, and others relatively new to the faith. People of multiple ethnicities from all across the Roman Empire. And once again, brothers and sisters, the application is right in front of us. In order for us to follow the, bl- the blueprint of Antioch and be a multi-ethnic church plant, we must have multi-ethnic, multi-class leadership. Says the pastor of the church whose full-time staff is all white. And yet the point still stands. In order for us to follow the blueprint of Antioch and become a multi-ethnic church, we must have leadership that reflects the demographics of this city. And what that means for us, church, is not affirmative action. It's not that we empower people who are less qualified or equipped for the job because of their ethnicity or socioeconomic status. But what it does mean is that we tilt the scale in healthy ways. It means that we are devoting a lot of energy to looking for and equipping and empowering minority, minority leadership. And it means that we in the majority culture are committing to make room for minority leadership by not demanding to be in power all the time, which we're really good at. Amen? The last point of application I want to make here is for our minority brothers and sisters. Last week I picked on the white brothers and sisters a good bit, and I don't want anyone to feel left out. So if you look again at verse 20, it says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Luke goes out of his way to highlight the ethnicity of the evangelists. The, the ethnicity of those who pursued the Gentiles. They were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. Cyrene, a city in North Africa. Are you catching Luke's drift here? These were people who were part of the minority culture, and they were reaching out to others in the minority culture. And so what the text is showing us here is that in order for us to achieve this goal of multi-ethnicity, some of our minority brothers and sisters are going to need to lead the way in many ways. And they're going to need to embrace the call to seek out other African-American, Latino, African, Asian, so on, brothers and sisters, and bring them into this fold. We need your help. And, and white people, that doesn't mean that we're off the hook. But what it does mean is that we all have a role to play in accomplishing this vision. Amen? Amen. But the church was not only multi-ethnic, we see it was also gospel-centered. Look with me now at verse 22. The report came to the ears of the church in Antioch, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So the word gets out that something big is happening in Antioch, so the church, the church in Jerusalem sends one of their key guys, Barnabas, to check it out. 
It doesn't take Barnabas long to realize that this is a legitimate move of the Spirit, that God's at work here. But what does Barnabas do with that information? He could have simply just turned around and gone back home and said, hey, it's going great there in Antioch, good for them. But instead, he stays. And not only does he stay, but he goes and he tracks down Paul and he drags him down there and they both stay for a whole year. Why? What are they doing? Well, Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, is honoring his name by encouraging his brothers and sisters in Antioch to stay the course. And then Paul, who's probably the greatest Bible teacher of all time, is teaching the Bible. You see, because both Barnabas and Saul knew that the work was not done simply by conversion. Paul later says in Colossians 1, 28, We proclaim Him, Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. The end goal is that we all grow up in the faith, that we grow towards maturity. And in order to do that, we need to be encouraged in the gospel. That's Barnabas. And we need to be taught the gospel over and over and over again. That's Paul. And it's through that encouragement and teaching that we remain gospel-centered. Many of you might not know that we are part of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. That's our denomination. And one of the critiques of the PCA is that we're way too focused on doctrine, that we worry way too much about getting it right, and that we should just love people and move on with it. But what we see here is that Paul spent an entire year making sure that a strong foundation in the gospel was laid in Antioch. Clearly, Paul recognized that doctrine is extremely important. And so for that same reason, here at Christ Central Church, we are committed to having strong doctrine to ensure that we always remain gospel-centered, flowing out of that gospel-centeredness, we see that the church of Antioch was very much mercy-minded. Look again at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Here the blueprint of the Antioch church reveals a church that is incredibly generous and has an incredible concern for the poor. Here in church planting terms, we have the receiving church serving the sending church. The multi-ethnic church serving the mono-ethnic church. Now there's a whole sermon right there, we'll save it. Verse 29, everyone gave according to his ability. You see, gospel-centeredness drives gospel-driven gospel generosity. When we're gospel-centered, we will inevitably be generous. Do you ever ponder what are the consequences for the church of the fact that we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world? For that matter, one of the wealthiest countries of all time. One of the consequences is that something that used to be an integral part of the church's mission has been graciously taken over by the state. 
I use the word gracious loosely. And that activity that was taken over by the state is meeting the physical needs of our neighbors. You see, historically, the church was the only hope for the poor. Hospitals were created by the church. The early church, in many ways, was the first adoption agency, rescuing abandoned child's abandoned babies from the trash heap. The early church functioned as a nursing home for elderly who were cast aside. Today, our wonderful government handles much of this, and we as a church are left off the hook, or so it seems. But the blueprint here seems to say otherwise. Certainly, we should be grateful and thankful for all the wonderful things that our government provides, but the, st- the text still begs the question, what responsibility do we have in serving the church that is in need, particularly in the two-thirds world? What responsibility do we have in serving the church in Nepal, in Iraq, in Somalia, in Syria? I don't have a definitive answer to that question, but I know for sure that we need to be asking it. The people of the church of Antioch structured their lives in such a way so that they could give generously to those in need. Are we a mercy-minded church? Are we structuring our lives so that we can give to those in need, both in our city and around the world? Lastly, we see that the church of Antioch was a church-planting church plant. Look again at chapter 13. Now, they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. We listed them. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Brothers and sisters, I cannot emphasize enough how huge this section of Scripture is for us as a church. In a, in a Western church culture that seeks to hoard all the best people and resources in order to pursue bigger and better, the Antioch model stands in a stark contrast. In the middle of the worship service, the Spirit speaks, and what does He say? He says, set apart your best guys because I'm calling them to go elsewhere. And then what does the church say? Oh no, God, not Paul and Barnabas anyone take anyone take timothy please but not them we'll never get to two services if you take paul and barnabas no that's not what they do they culminate the service by laying their hands on paul and barnabas and they send them off and what we will later see is that antioch becomes the first true missionary sending church They create a culture of raising up and sending out leaders. They are resource distributors, not resource hoarders. Christ Central Church, one of the things that is happening here is that we are growing in relationship with one another. Community is forming, deep friendships are being built, and that's a beautiful thing, and it's something that we should cherish and we should pursue. But the reality is that we are committed to the Antioch blueprint. We are committed to being a church-planting church plant. We are committed to being resource distributors and not resource hoarders, all for the greater good of this city and of the world. We are laying the glory of Christ Central Church on the altar of the glory of God in this city and in the world. I heard it said one time that Christians are like manure. 
you pile them together and they really stink. But if you spread them around, they make things grow. There will come a time in a not-too-distant future when it will be time for this church plant to plant a church. And the question I have for you is, are you willing to let go of some of your close friends and partners in ministry? Will you be okay with sending our best and our brightest out? Will you be willing to go and to leave some of your close friends behind and partners in ministry? What if God calls us to send Pastor Daniel? We'll pick on him since he's not here. Will you support that for the sake of the greater vision of God's kingdom? And if the answer for you is no, I challenge you to begin asking God to do a work in your heart in this area. Because our vision is not to become a safe haven for Christians. Our vision, like Antioch, is to be a sending church, a training center for kingdom laborers, men and women who are sent out to live and to love and to serve all over the city. That's the blueprint of Antioch, and it's the blueprint for Christ Central Church. If you remember from my opening illustration, Henry Ford not only had the vision of the V8, but he also had an unwavering commitment to see that vision accomplished, even when it seemed impossible. Brothers and sisters, for us to replicate the model of the Antioch church, to be a multi-ethnic, gospel-centered, mercy-minded, church-planting church plant seems quite daunting, doesn't it? And the reality is, contrary to the manufacturing of the V8, our task is indeed impossible. It's impossible. And yet we serve a God whose wheelhouse is the impossible because it is there that He alone receives all the glory and honor and praise. So I challenge you, Christ Central Church, to lean into the impossibility of the vision that God has laid before us, trusting that He will accomplish what He has called us to do. A wise person once told me, if God places the order, He always picks up the bill. God has placed the order for us to be a multi-ethnic, gospel-centered, mercy-minded, church-planting church plant. Let's live with the boldness as though we actually believe that he's going to pick up the bill. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's a lot that we just looked at. This is, in some ways, our vision laid before us. And we realize that it's impossible, that we cannot accomplish it that we desperately need you. Lord, would you accomplish this vision? Would you call us to lean into you and to trust you? Would you do the impossible here at Christ Central Church, and would you get all the glory and honor and praise? I pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.